Good morning. Thank you all for gathering for our forum today. We have the opportunity to hear from our very own Ray Suarez. Uh, today is the first day of Advent, which is why I'm decked out for the new year. It's the first day of our church year and of the season of Advent, which uh, helps us to prepare ourselves to receive Jesus into the world. So we have Ray here this morning to offer his perspective on those Advent themes, uh, thinking about prophets, thinking about the incarnation of God, um, where we are in all of that. So it's a delight um, to get to hear from you today. Let's begin with prayer. It's always a good place to start. God be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and incarnate God, we are preparing our high hearts and minds and lives to welcome you yet again. As we prepare for your our incarnation, you coming in flesh among us, may we consider how we on earth can bring your kingdom closer to a reality. May we be the very bodies of Christ here on earth as we pray and worship you, as we ponder the wonderful acts of your Son and our Savior. May we come to know you more fully and to share the knowledge and love of you in the world. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. When uh, Adeline got in touch a few months ago to see if I was interested in coming back for this forum this year, she reminded me that one of the themes of Advent One is preparation. Sure, this is a season of preparation. Back in the mid-90s when Jim Donald first asked me to give an Advent talk, the cultural scene was very different. The American economy was rocking and rolling, the tech revolution was creating new fortunes, and a rocket-fueled stock market was making people feel rich, or at least richer, leading to Christmas seasons of excess. And I gave as this ex example a Neiman Marcus nativity scene that costs a mere $5,000. I'm not sure where you would put it in the living room uh, when guests came or how you would work into the conversation that it was a $5,000 nativity scene, or whether the play was to just not mention it at all and let it speak for itself in all its gold too muchness. Maybe we really need to unpack the theology behind a $5,000 nativity scene, but that's another rant for another day. But it's a perfect symbol for the holiday time rituals that left a lot of people feeling burdened by expectations, running to keep up, so wrung out by the time the 25th of December actually arrived that it wasn't even that joyful anymore. So the talks I gave during those years were complete with Martha Stewart jokes and holiday party jokes built around overconsumption and pride. And those talks landed. A full house, people laughing, relaxing. They would seem entirely out of place now. Because this was before 9-11, before a deep recession, before the pandemic, before serial crises that made some of the burning questions of the 1990s. Like a reporter asking Bill Clinton, boxers or briefs seem silly and quaint. And for those who weren't around then, yes, that really happened. And yes, he really answered the question, and no, it wasn't me who asked it. <laughs> I look around the nave every Sunday, and by the way, yay us, huh? Five baptisms and 12 confirmations would be the envy of congregations across the country. And I see you all at the coffee line in the common, and some of the faces are the same ones I've seen since I got here. 
It's warming, it's comforting, it's reinforcing, and as encouraging in its way as all the faces of the people that I don't know who I now see around here, which is great too, but a different great. Then Mitch and Courtney showed me this. It's the photograph that illustrated the annual stewardship brochure in Jim Donald's second year as rector. After I get over the distraction of all that dark hair and no wrinkles and two little kids, seven and five, I recall that I was being greeted by the oldest member of the congregation at that time, George Fletcher, born with the century, a member of one of the founding families of this congregation, who used to tell me stories of when all the roads in this part of town were unpaved, the chapel that was St. Albans' mission in this part of Washington that stood right where we're sitting now, and how Albemarle Street was renamed from Murdoch Mill Road when they finally laid out this section of town. And the water that fell, fed Mr. Murdoch's mill was buried, channeled, covered over. It's still down there, running to, I guess, the Potomac? I don't know. I knew what Jim Donnell was going for here. Continuity, a young family coming through the front door to be greeted by a pillar of the congregation. But it also shocked me because it was a reminder of the passage of time. Those little kids, those two little kids, one turns 35 next month and lives on the other side of the planet. The other is a priest on the Upper West Side of Manhattan um, giving communion right about now. So much time has passed, real calendar time and emotional time and milestone time, and in the meantime, we got old. I mean, not all of us, <laughs> but collectively, we got old, and many of the people watching those Advent talks in the 90s are no longer here. In the meantime, this season of preparation I am happily preparing to spend Christmas with all three of my children. The third one wasn't even contemplated when that fundraising picture was taken. And now she's an adult too. So in this season of preparation, in this compact cluster of weeks, a lot, yes, has to get done. But what are we preparing for in the wider sense? The last laps. Like, not dying momentarily last laps, but in the, the fullness of the, the race, the last laps. A different time of life with different realities and rhythms. In short, I'm preparing to become George Fletcher, eventually. And there's the thing. I am, you are all immersed in it and watching from a, difference, a distance at the same time. I'm preparing both voluntarily, consciously, and involuntarily in ways I can't yet fully assess or understand for those last laps. The changes involve a core paradox of becoming softer and harder at the same time. And I'll try to explain. And maybe some of you on this side of 60 may be feeling, may have felt similar things, and maybe not. We can talk about it. For one thing, I'm becoming impossibly, what should I call it? Maybe sentimental, but sentimental doesn't even really get you there. It doesn't get you far enough. When George Bailey's neighbors rally to his side and fill a basket with money while fake snow tumbles from their hats and they sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I can barely keep my composure now. That's ridiculous, but it's still true. When young Mary Bailey comes to Gower's drugstore and purposely whispers into the young soda jerk's deaf ear on purpose, George Bailey, I will love you till the day I die. I can hardly sit in my seat. 
When we here in these pews belt out, I sing a song of the saints of God, I get so choked up by the third verse that I can barely croak out the words. The world is bright with the joyous saints who love to do Jesus' will. You can meet them in school or in lanes or at sea, in church or in trains or in shops or at tea. For the saints of God are just folk like me, and I mean to be one too. When I was 26, it was charming, Sunday schoolish, maybe just a little bit of what the British call twee, as Webster defines it, affectedly cute or quaint. When I was 46, I wanted my children to love it as much as I do and recognize those charming old lyrics from Lesbia Scott as part of what makes us who we are in this place. But now at 66, it's the whole game, right there in words of one and two syllables, in two lines, a world of people where you can run into anywhere, lit up by simple holiness. When I'm in Midtown Manhattan, I try to make my route go by the 42nd Street headquarters of the New York Daily News, not because it's a very good paper, because it's not, uh, but there is a bas-relief on the facade with the apocryphal quote from Abraham Lincoln, or at least the end of it, God must have loved the common people. He made so many of them. I stare at that, and it just gets me. It just gets me in a way that it never could. And how, how did I get to be such a softy? I spent decades keeping the world at arm's length for a living. I had to. As a reporter, you need to keep a critical distance from what you're covering, or else you can't see the story very clearly. All you can see is how you feel about it, and that would be bad. Well, maybe not entirely. You still have to do the job well and not be made of stone. If you are made of stone, if you are impermeable, the reporting suffers. You can be interviewing three little girls who live on their own. The household is run by the 13-year-old on the right. They've lost both their parents to HIV and are shell-shocked, and you know they're shell-shocked because you've raised two little girls, too. You could be in a village where just about all the adults have died and meet a 19-year-old girl who now cares for six cousins and walk away knowing that there's not much you can do about it and that this is not going to be okay. You can watch as people in a neighborhood in Port-au-Prince desperately scramble through the ruins of a building looking for what's left of their loved ones and all their meager worldly possessions. Or get the distinct and unforgettable odor of human remains as you pass a nursing college where two entire classes were crushed to death in their classrooms with no survivors and Reflect on what a loss that is to a poor country to lose two entire classes in the National Nursing College. Or, you know, maybe less jolting to the senses, but no less bizarre. Go to one of the most crowded places you know in one of the largest cities on earth and walk through deserted streets in the middle of a pandemic. You are a proxy for all the people who read and listen and watch. So you have to convey some of the sense of a place, what it's like to spend time with people going through terrible things. And you can't be a blubbering, emoting bag of sentiments. The job requires a dispassionate view. But what is dispassion but a willful separation from the suffering of others? They were suffering, all right, but I needed to stand apart from them just a bit so I could see them more clearly and tell what others what I'm seeing. Well, today I try to still be in the game, 
you're welcome to listen to my weekly radio show and podcast and read my next book, which comes out in April, but with an important difference. I think I now have the luxury of showing a little bit more leg and letting the veil slip a little more. For two reasons. One, that I figured after more than 40 years of playing it straight, I had earned the right to have an opinion. And the second, I can't pretend anymore that I'm not feeling it. I can't strike that pose that holds me apart from the things, the ideas, the events, the people I cover, in part because I'm not the same person anymore. I haven't got time for harsh judgment. I haven't got time for only doing the compulsory figure eights of disinterestedness, going through the motions of an austere separation from the muck and mire. I don't know about you, but as we sit here in Washington, I'm dreading next year as we enter this season of preparation, preparing for 2024 is one of the less happy tasks for someone like me. I can't stand today's politics. I can't stand the suggestion that some people are vermin, that some people are polluting the nation's blood, that the best thing that you can do for someone is in trouble is shame and deride and harangue and hold them up for scorn. That's where we are, and it's not a happy time. Last lapse for me, maybe for you, has meant letting go of that stuff because it's just as they say in Spanish, muy, muy. It's just too, too, and it's just getting to be too heavy to carry around. Not letting go of everything all the time, but it's meant running through the supermarket aisles, sorting between those things that matter and those things that don't matter choosing between what I can spare the psychic energy to care about and what I just can't. When I was a kid, I was an assistant at the altar, washing hands, clearing elements, serving the chalice, in white gloves, no less. It was a much less chill age than we're living in now. I grew up in the low church. We had communion once a month, morning prayer the other Sundays. You didn't take communion until you were confirmed. And of course, were not welcome to the bread and wine if you were not baptized. I was taught the rules, I understood the rules, and since I was actively on the inside, I followed the rules. And then I lived another half century. I sat in Catholic churches where priests very specifically told people not to come to communion. I talked to people new to the church or some who didn't even know whether their parents had them baptized as infants or not, who wanted to be part of the central drama of our sacramental life together. And I thought maybe if someone finds their way to us, listens to scripture, listens to teaching from the pulpit, confesses their sins, receives absolution, and then joins us in prayer around a memorial to Christ's dedication of his life and his body to his friends and to the human race. Maybe that's enough. A quietly rule-following guy who used to kill time during boring sermons reading the articles of religion at the back of the prayer book now says, a rule that excludes rather than invites in a sacrament built around invitation maybe isn't such a great rule. And besides, the only way I even knew for sure that I was baptized was because I've seen pictures of it. My father was on active duty with the Pacific Fleet. He wasn't even there. I know what the canons say. I know what the quickly sketched out standards in tiny type in prayer book rubrics say. I don't care. I'm team open table now. 
And I look forward to the day when our cousins in the Catholic Church stop telling people not to come to communion. Recently in conversation, someone reminded me that would be a violation of canon law, of centuries of church teaching. And I realized, I don't care. I can't be bothered wondering about the sincerity or validity of someone else's choices in life. It's interesting, it's incidental, but I'm not going to do some sort of soul biopsy on them. I can't. I have no basis, I have no standing, I have no possible way of living the life of someone who is suffering as they try to work out who they'll be in their community, with their families, at work, on the street. If they're convinced that they were meant to live as a man instead of a woman or vice versa, I'm not a physician, I'm not an endocrinologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a, legislature, a legislator, I'm a human being who just wants the world to work with a minimum of cruelty and a maximum decency if we can muster that for each other. I had to get there from somewhere else, and maybe you feel the same way as you get older. As I watch my country descend into meanness and triviality over gender, sexuality, appearance, grab judgment and hostility and mockery with muscular gusto, pass laws that seem to have no other purpose than to make the lives of people who already have plenty on their plates more unhappy and more dangerous. That's not political. It's not political. Believe me when I tell you it's not political. It's a recognition that my life is too short to burn up psychic energy, expend emotional energy, taking the judgment seat to inform others that I don't approve of them. What could be a more meaningless task at this time in my life? To tell people that they're repulsive or dangerous or not worthy of embrace, but only worthy of shunning. Many people sitting as we are right now in church all over the country would find what I've said to be perverse, weak-kneed, unchristian. Last laps are like realizing toward the end of the journey that your boat is sitting too low in the water. And every time a choppy wave comes along, you might take a little bit more water. You know you've got to throw stuff overboard to stay upright in the water, to not have those waves cause your little canoe, your whole world, to founder. Age should bring a kind of confidence, sure. Hopefully, you have a better idea of who you are and who you aren't by this stage in the game. But it should ideally also bring a kind of modesty instead of pride. That's the idea, the sort of Another paradox in all of this, that this pride in finally being able to stand emotionally upright should also remind you that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. A binary yes-no, black and white world becomes less possible as you enter those last laps. And, if, and instead of that being a problem because there's got to be one answer, well, why does there have to be one answer? Yesterday, I asked AI to create an image of a man my age, unburdened and rising. I use those words. <laughs> and this is what artificial intelligence came up with. My version doesn't look exactly like this. But that increased permeability, that willingness to let stuff get to me, along with the unburdening of judgment, of conclusion, of other people's rules, it makes you lighter. At least I have that in common with this fella. This is what AI thinks a 66-year-old looks like, by the way. <laughs> so it still needs some work. On your last laps, you can be liberated finally to be yourself, just more yourself. 
because you're not performing the role of yourself for everybody else. A life refined, reduced like sauce to something more like its essentials. That's what I'm hoping for anyway. Able to listen better, able to understand better, able to be both unburdened and less willing to be bogged down by the trivial. Able to look at life like a popover. I know, you're thinking, really? Why a popover? Because you can just eat the bread and spit out the hot air. In this season of preparation, what's making your canoe sit too low in the water? I mean, besides core, essential, rock-bottom required you, is there stuff accumulated, swollen, heavy, that you're reaching an age when you can decide you just don't have to hold on anymore with that white-knuckled grip. I found potentially fatal illness tends to concentrate the mind. And if you've ever had one, you know what I mean. The very real possibility of imminent decline and death forces you into a season of preparation, even if it's only preparation to be okay with being unsure of everything that comes next or whether there's even still going to be a next. Illusions, expectations of others, disappointments, setbacks, that at this stage of the game are just doing you absolutely no good at all. Stuff that you can't even remember, stuff you're entangled with, and you're not even sure why you still are. Maybe it's a good time to empty the closet. And in full disclosure, this is not my closet. I asked AI for a full and messy closet, and that's what it gave me. <laughs> the beginning of the church year is conveniently the end of the world's year, but they don't line up perfectly. And that's great for us. As people who are ideally defined by being in the world but not of the world, we can use these next few weeks and take an emotional inventory, count the half pairs in the psychic sock drawer, and get rid of them, instead of looking for that elusive and permanently missing other half. I don't know where the other sock is, but it's okay for you to admit you don't either. I hope that in the midst of life's trials and challenges, you can see the good, like flecks of gold in the mud and muck of daily life. I am, as I approach Christmas 2023, a shockingly lucky guy. I've had the same girlfriend since I was 18. And for five decades. And somehow, she's still always on my right when we take a picture, which makes it a great montage. I get to go to amazing places and see amazing things, like a giant Hindu temple in the Dallas suburbs. Phenomenal. Or a machine that turns out tens of thousands of madeleines per hour. Could you imagine biting into one over and over and having your whole life flash before you again? Who could stand it? But this is built by a Vietnamese boat people immigrant family, one of the largest commercial bakeries in California. And I get to talk to you year after year, my huge and only slightly dysfunctional extended family, and always challenged to look for new themes over the decades, searching, sending me in search of exotica. And in this solemn and wonderful time of year, what could you need more than a cat nativity? <laughs> but seriously, you'll never know how important this place has been to my family over the years, since, like a lot of you, we came here to Washington with no local family. We came from somewhere else for specific jobs, and in joy and sorrow and sickness and health, you have lifted us up. So what can I tell you? 
Don't let the world impinge on you now as we enter these shortest and darkest days of the year. Don't let yourself feel rushed. Don't let yourself feel hassled. Remember, you get to have your Advent and your Christmas a la carte. You can prepare in a way that doesn't involve a begrudging time of self-sacrifice, but is instead a time where the joy is charged by happy anticipation rather than dread. The smiling energy that's so palpable in this place when we green the nave in the common every year, for example. Try to have that spirit in the things you do in the next couple of weeks. My wish for you is that you carry that spirit, especially if you're in the last laps or on the edge of the last laps, well beyond these coming weeks and into the new year, of being unburdened, of letting go of the inessentials, of packing light for this stage of the journey. As our former associate here, the now nationally known Jay Sidebotham used to remind us, every year with his calendars. Slow down, quiet, it's Advent. Thanks a lot. Are you willing to entertain some questions for sure. us? We have a few more Absolutely. minutes together. Uh, so we have a, a mic here. I'd ask that you have a question. Either raise your hand and I can bring you the mic or come up here so folks online uh, can hear your questions and that the whole room can hear you. Um, but any questions from folks? Come on. Uh, well, the wonderful thing about the pandemic is that it f forced many churches on camera. So you can watch Eva preach on the uh, Cathedral of St. John the Divine YouTube channel. And remember with a joy and satisfaction that this congregation sponsored her for ordination and that she also did um, SCAP and YAC and Sunday School and that's the... Um, the quality of the young people we turn out here. Yes. Ray, thank you for uh, validating something I've been doing rather guiltily for the last year or so, and that is I used to read the paper thoroughly. I pick it up in the morning and there are about five at least things that I just don't read about anymore. And sometimes they're the leading headlines, but they're about people or situations that A, I can do nothing about, but B, I just don't care about or they so disgust me. And if you say that's okay to blot out those things too, then I feel much better about the way I read the paper now. Thank you. I, mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to create a world where there's, where there's no audience for what journalists do because we're still, we're still doing an important thing for society. But you don't have to watch the latest twists and turns in the stories of George Santos or, or Hunter Biden. You don't need to be right on the rivet uh, knowing exactly what's going on in some of the, the nonsense that passes for civic discourse now. You can give yourself permission to step one or two steps back for it. Not, not into the next room, but you gotta know what, somewhat what's going on in the world, but a lot of it's just nonsense. And you can just say, oh, I'll just go to the next page. This is nonsense, and it's okay. Yes. Yeah, well, thanks very much. I've been trying also to tune out things that are senseless, um, that, that don't enrich my life. 
that don't give me a better perspective on myself and on the world. And yet, there is so much suffering going on, and it's very hard to turn that out and to feel so helpless about it. So I find myself struggling with that, with that sense of helplessness, and at the same time of great outrage and fear for the future. So I'm curious to know if you have struggled with that balance as well. Absolutely, because there's been a shocking tendency of accumulation of nonsense and accumulation of real threat. They're like matched mountains at the same time. So you can't check out and just say, I'm just not in it, I'm not part of it. Um, that feeling of helplessness also involves a surrender too. So try to steel yourself to not feel helpless in the face of it. It's, I mean, we have to, we have to stay attached to the rest of humanity, but we don't have to stay attached to George Santos. So it's a, it's a constant, constant balancing act. Um, there's already a movie in the works, by the way. So I just told you, so you don't have to read about it. Uh, the world has become increasingly dangerous. The world has become a place of near constant threat for millions and millions of people on the move. Hundreds of millions internally displaced, being pushed across borders. That stuff's real. And that we have to kind of keep on. But just in a country where there are fewer working journalists today than there were 25 years ago, and there's like three times as much content, think about what that means. If I told you there was three times of almost anything else and fewer people making it, I think you'd make a conclusion about the quality of the product. Well, unfortunately, news has become like that, too. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough, tough reality that we're, uh, we have to deal with right now. And despair is... It's a plausible possibility. It's not... It's not a weakness, and it's not a, um, some sort of um, moral judgment. But wow, you got to hold on. Just hang on. It's, it's really bad. It's really bad, and I can't sugarcoat it. Yeah. Thank you, Ray. You had great advice. I will have to work really hard to follow it. <laughs> The, um, I have a question about journalism and the current uh, state of things. I recently read an article that um, was uh, commenting that the former president got more news and more discussion by the press than the current president because the former president, it's all focused on his behavior. And the current president has policies that are trying to help, and nobody seems to focus on some of the accomplishments, and they just focus on the behavior of politicians now, and not so much on what they're trying to achieve or what they have achieved. And so that makes me nervous because my reality is so different from someone else's. And how that's going to impact our country going forward with the leadership. Could you comment on the role of journalism in that? Uh, the news business has had an impossible time catching up with a new way of the world. It's very much stuck in the 20th century in some really, really important aspects. One is that the responsibility is felt to cover things in a way that normalizes them because describing how abnormal they are would essentially be an editorial comment. And I don't want to oversimplify how difficult working out of a 60-year paradigm is. It's hard because when you have someone who is willing to, to be 
a smasher of things, you go cover the smashing. That's kind of what we do. But this is not a normal time, and this is not a normal time in our politics, and our journalism has had a very, very difficult time catching up to a new way of explaining the present that does justice to just how odd this time is. I hope, I hope I, that that's somewhat clear. <laughs> this is, we come up, people like me, come up in a, a model, in a matrix of how this is done. You go see things, you go find out what happened, you ask people about it, you ferret out facts, and from all those things, that pile of straw that you created, you rumpelstiltskin that stuff into gold by processing the straw through your spinning machine, and you come out at the end with a story. This happened, this happened, this happened, this is what it means, this is what people said. And you can sometimes, because I've done it, do that half asleep. Don't tell my bosses of earlier decades. But because you know what that involves and what the, um, the normal movement is, the way uh, judges scoring a gymnastics match know that you have to get over that vault or uh, do this on the rings or the, the exercise mat, there's ways of scoring that, and, and everybody understands what the form of a story is. We have come into a time where the people we are telling stories about are gaming that and understand what it takes to be in tomorrow morning's paper or tomorrow's morning's pixels and are willing to do outrageous and abnormal things in order to get our attention, but also know that we will then use our tools in the normal 20th century way to describe the outrageous things that they, they are doing, and they won't suffer from it. And that's a key thing to remember going forward, that the abnormality of some of the things that are happening is not being told because of the 20th century forms that we have brought with us to this abnormal time. So we're using um, Galileo's telescopes to look at things that are happening now, and our tools are insufficient to the task, and the expectations of our consumers, our listeners, readers, and viewers are also not adjusted to this maladjusted world. We're going to work it out. I just hope it's not too late to work it out. It's a, it's a frightening time if you do what I've been doing for the last 45 years. Because just going and looking at abnormal things and saying, this is what happened, this is abnormal, is not going to change minds. We are in a new place where it's shirts and skins, red team and blue team, and people are not moved off of their position by the, a change in reality. It used to be, you know, like John Maynard Keynes apocryphally said, well, when the facts change, I change my opinion. What do you do, sir? Well, he may have never said it, but he was, it's ascribed to him because he was smart. Yes, when, when the facts changed, I changed my opinion. Uh, now we are, we are post that, whatever that is. And we are in this new world where our allegiances don't really dwell in the realms of normal discretion any longer, and journalism is running hard to catch up with that as it's losing foot soldiers day by day, as more newsrooms downsize and close and fewer journalists are doing the work of telling a bigger and more complicated country what's going on. Yes. Hello. Um, it's good to see you here. I remember your talk from last year. And uh, two questions. What called you to be, oh, what called you to become a journalist? 
and how do you follow truth? What called me to become what? A journalist. Oh, a journalist. And how do you follow truth? Well, um, I was um, like 13 or 14 and uh, trying to figure out what I needed to do to get out of my neighborhood. And I thought about what I was good at, which at that time it seemed to me was writing and talking. And I wondered what jobs uh, combined writing and talking and would get me out of Bensonhurst. And that was definitely the job that would do it. And uh, that wasn't because I, I, wanted, I was dying to get out of Brooklyn. I just wanted to see the world beyond Brooklyn. And I knew that that would... And this is, this is pre-hipster Brooklyn. This is um, Ralph Cramden Brooklyn that I was trying to get out of. And uh, it seemed to me that this would get me out, and it did, it got me here. I never imagined Tenley Town, but, um, but here I am. But I, I seriously, though, I, I, I knew I wanted to be a reporter since I was 14 years old, and I thought the best job in the world would be covering New York City Hall for WCBS News Radio. And if I got there, I would have realized all my dreams, which was the way a 14-year-old looks at the world. It was um, incorrect, and, but the, the decision that I made then was, um, was the right one for me. Ray, just a quick comment and then a question. Your comment about um, the current press having a hard time keeping up reminds me of a phrase that Thurston Veblen, a sociologist, said called trained incapacity, by which he meant the inability of sociologists and engineers to solve certain problems that they would have been able to solve had they not had their professional training. So I worry the problem's even worse, which is that the, the people who are historically trained to cover news um, are so ingrained in how they were trained that they can't make that shift in time. And I think this is one of the great, the great risks. Um, and then just a, a quick, quick question. You talked about the, the final lapse, which is what I'm in and, and you're in. I'm a little, I have, a few, I have fewer laps than you uh, left. But can you just make a comment or two about those in the country who are in their early laps, who are in their 20s and, and 30s, seeing this and, and any comments you have about, about that? I was um, interviewing a uh, psychiatrist who works with young people recently, and she was telling me just heartbreaking stories about the undertow of pessimism among her patients in their 20s, uh, both about their uh, relational lives, being able to have sustained relations across their uh, adult lives, their material futures, where it looks impossible from where they sit to have the kind of security that their own parents did, and a, a larger, more universal pessimism about things like global warming and refugee catastrophe and constant war that makes, I think it's, you know, I have a 23-year-old, I think it's fair to say that many of them have a pretty dark view of the world. And it would be unrealistic to try to talk them out of that dark view by saying, oh, come on, buck up, things are gonna be a lot better. Because you have to actually provide some evidence if you're gonna say that and evidence seems to be in pretty short supply right now. But that uh, pessimism about both the near and middle term is a hard thing to watch. Even among my poorest classmates in high school in the 1970s, there was a feeling that things could be better, not just for them, but for their neighborhoods. And even in the throes of bankruptcy, People thought, well, you know, New York will somehow get through this. 
And now a more powerful, bigger, richer, more secure New York is more pessimistic than it was in those days of municipal bankruptcy about the near-term future. So uh, it's a dark time, and it's not going to be over soon. And, uh, you know, when my, when my youngest kid said to me, have a kid? Are you kidding? I'm not having any kids. What exactly could I say to talk her out of it? I couldn't think of anything at the moment. I reminded her that, um, that Carol and I thought of having her as an essentially hopeful act, and that that has to be, that idea has to be passed on. But boy, oh boy, I'm, I, it's tough to be in your 20s now, I think. Um, and if, I, if you had asked me whether Thorsten Veblen was going to come up during this morning's talk, I never would have thought so, but I'm glad he did. Read Theory of the Leisure Class during your Christmas vacation. It's phenomenal. Thank you, Ray. Thank you.